morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. And going to take for our text this morning this, this entire chapter, entire chapter of Philippians chapter 3. Now, having said that, we're not going to be able to get into much detail about this text, but I would just desire for us this morning that we all would have some kind of a general understanding of this, of this marvelous, marvelous chapter, the rich truth that there is for us as we seek to mine this chapter together uh, this morning. You come to Philippians chapter 3, and the very first word that you come to is the word finally. It reminds me of the little boy who asked his dad in church one morning, what does the preacher mean when he says finally, daddy? And the, pre- and, and the, and the dad said, uh, he means absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing. That word finally is, 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 can kind of throw you off a little bit. You, you might think that, that Paul's really just closing things down, that he's winding things down, and that the rest of the letter is just kind of filler. It's just kind of taking up space or maybe a few side notes, and really nothing could be further from the truth when you come to Philippians chapter 3. Actually, what we have here in Philippians 3 and 4 is really the meat of the letter. It's really the meat of the letter. It's what Paul intended to, to write to these Philippians. And that word finally maybe could be translated better as moreover or furthermore. He's, he's really bringing things to a point of transition. He's not concluding at all, but he's really ramping up the letter. And what you'll notice in chapter 3 is, is, is actually kind of amazing. His, his language gets decidedly more intense. He's, he's, not, he's not cooling down. He's really heating up. He's getting more intense in his language and more concentrated in his, in his language. Now, I want you to remember that there are issues in the church at Philippi. There are issues. Remember, this church was started, as is every church, genuine church, started by the sovereignty of God as God called Paul in through the Macedonian dream, the Macedonian vision, coming over. He says, come over here and help us. And and he goes there and finds people gathered around that, that body of water. And, and there, uh, Paul and the team preach the gospel. And many people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But there were problems here in the church at Philippi. There was a, what we might call a unity problem at the church of Philippi. Actually, what was happening is people were coming to take sides. They were becoming selfish and self-centered and self-serving, and Paul is really desirous that they would actually grow in their love for one another. He says that in chapter 1, verse 9, that longing for them to, to grow in their love for one another, to abound in their love for one another. And he's desirous that they would, that they would hold fast to the gospel truth, as he says in chapter 1 and verse 27. But guess what? There was another problem. What was that? The problem was that there were opponents. There were adversaries. These were the false teachers who had invaded Philippi. And these adversaries brought some kind of opposition which involved them making, according to the end of chapter 1, involved them making some kinds of threats against the church. Now, I happen to believe that what was causing that internal strife 
in the church that was being experienced there in Philippi, what was causing that internal strife was somehow facilitated with the opposition. They were making these threats against the church, and no doubt, I mean, remember, when Paul was in Philippi, what's one of the first things that happened to him? He was thrown into prison. He was beaten with many stripes and thrown into prison. And so, no doubt, there was some kind of, there was some kind of threat being made against the Christians, some kind of threats being made against those who were following followers of Jesus Christ. And that was ramping up the internal pressure in the church and causing some friction in the church. And Paul is eager that they stand fast in Christ. Paul is eager that they be anchored and secure in Jesus Christ and not pull away from Christ and not pull away from one another. You know, this week I, I spent some time, uh, uh, quite a bit of time this past week in the, in the car. I was driving out to, to see Caleb at one of his meets there in Ohio. And it gave me the opportunity to reflect on these past 28 years of ministry here. And I've realized that over 28 years, I mean, that's a long time. And over 28 years, people have come and people have gone. I'm just talking about the church. But what I realized, what I was thinking about, was the amount of people that have become, over these 28 years, the amount of people who have become spiritual casualties. Spiritual casualties. They had some kind of external attraction to the gospel, but in the midst of trials and, and temptations, suffering and hardship, they've been thrown off track. They were either duped by some compelling temptation or swindled by some kind of cunning deception. And my desire this morning is that that not be the case for you. That that not be the case for you, that it not be the case for me, because by God's grace, I want you to see this morning that by God's good grace, He has provided exactly what we need for our safety. He's provided exactly what we need for our security, for our steadiness in the midst of peril. He has given us what we need so that you would not become a spiritual casualty in the peril of these days. What is it? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, but underline this phrase, and is safe for you. Now you notice that this verse is really structured around a command. We might call this an imperative. What's the imperative here? Well, you see it there, right? Rejoice in the Lord. In fact, to, to go even more, it's a present active imperative. It's like saying, be rejoicing in the Lord. Now, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you've come across the book of Philippians and you understand that many people say that the theme of the book of Philippians is in fact this issue of joy. It's stated very at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. The apostle was, even, even right now as he's writing this letter, he is in Roman imprisonment, and yet he's saying, even while I'm in the midst of imprisonment, I am filled with joy. And he longed for the Philippians to fulfill his joy, chapter 2, verse 2. And he calls the Philippians to receive their servant, Epaphroditus, with joy. 
And you know one of the most well-known verses in the book, chapter 4, verse 4. What does it say? Rejoice, what? In the Lord always. And again I say, what? Rejoice. This letter is just brimming with joy and the act of rejoicing. Which makes us wonder, what is joy? What is joy? It's kind of difficult to define, isn't it? The term really is something that is foreign to the fallen human race. Joy is one of those realities that's very difficult to define. Many have tried to reproduce joy or to to get something that's like joy, but we know that alcohol doesn't fuel it, money doesn't finance it, fame doesn't produce it, and relationships don't ensure it. We might say that joy is the spirit-produced contentment of soul. Joy is the spirit-produced contentment of soul. Such, such contentment is the root of an enduring gladness in spite of circumstances in which you find yourself. Paul tells us that such a reality is to be founded in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is to say that joy and its, and its outflow, rejoicing, is founded not only in a person, but it is founded in a position. What I mean to tell you is that contentedness of soul, which is expressed in an enduring gladness, originates in a person who is in a position of lordship. The basis for your joy The basis for your contentedness of soul is the lordship of Christ, his sovereignty, his sufficiency, his control. He is Lord over his church. Friends, that is the key to a joy-filled assembly who even in the presence of opposition and threats, knows a contentedness of soul which overflows in enduring gladness. You see, that's how Paul could rejoice. Even right now, as he's writing this letter, he is under Roman imprisonment with the Roman praetorian guard. He is chained to another to a, to a guard all day long. And you know what he says? I'm rejoicing in this. Why? Because the gospel has become known to the entire praetorian guard. Joy is something that is is an inner reality, a contentedness of soul, which is expressed through an enduring gladness, no matter what circumstances you're enduring or uh, uh, experiencing. Joy is something that can only come from Him. But it's more than that. He says, uh, uh, joy... One man said this, I I like this, when when they tried to uh, define joy. The joy of the Lord is the gladness of heart that comes from knowing God, abiding in Christ, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's so important. Because joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And you cannot replicate joy. That's why it's so sad that so many are looking to a bottle or to a paycheck or their friends list to find, thinking that somehow that's going to give them some relief, some help, some feeling of having arrived. The presence of joy in our lives is rooted solely in the work 
of the Holy Spirit. That is true. And it's also true that when it comes to this issue of joy or rejoicing, it is a human responsibility. It is a human responsibility. We are called to rejoice. And again, I'm taking that as being the outflow of joy. This rejoicing is the fruit of joy. It's something for which we are responsible. Let me say it this way, friends, you must rejoice. You must rejoice. And Paul says, for me to write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Question, what same things is he referring to? The only thing that's repeated throughout this letter is its emphasis on joy. And I think that's got to be the same things that he's referring to. This isn't something that's hard for him. It's not a burden for him. It's not troubling for me. Because why? Because this is second nature for the Apostle Paul. It's something that he appreciates and savors. If you ask me, if you say, oh, Brother Joe, will you come and preach? Now, and you say, I don't want to be a burden to you. And I would say, are you kidding me? That is no burden at all because that's what I live for. That's my life. Is it going to take something from me? Yes, but I don't even count that. It's not a burden at all. And Paul says, for me to write this thing to you over and over and over again is not burdensome for me. I relish the opportunity. In fact, he says, and here's the real point, for you it is safe. That word safe means securing, anchoring, stabilizing. Joy will keep you from being supplanted by the enemy. Joy is what the Holy Spirit will use to keep you from being knocked off track by temptations and trials and threats from spiritual opponents. Joy will keep you from being a casualty. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. He said, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. Have you ever known a joyful person? Have you ever known a joyful person? Maybe in your mind you're thinking about who that is. What are the characteristics of that person? Man, I long to know this joy. Nehemiah told the people of Israel, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. The psalmist said in Psalm 81.1, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. First Chronicles 16 says, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. This joy is going to be your strength your stability to keep you from being supplanted, to keep you from being knocked off track, to keep you from becoming a spiritual casualty. If that's the case, I want to give you this morning three necessities so that you can obey this command to rejoice in the Lord. Three necessities, three things that you must have Three things that must be a reality in your life if you are going to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord. You know what they are? 
Number one, make sure that you are a genuine believer. Now look, this is not going to be, you know, deep, detailed. We're just going to go look through chapter three and look at these three necessities. And I want you to examine your own life. If you are going to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord, which is the rejoicing is the outflow of a soul contentedness founded in Christ, you've got to first make sure that you are a genuine believer. Look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now you might say, Joe, why do you begin here? Why do we begin with this statement that if you want to rejoice in the Lord, you have to make sure that you are a genuine believer in Christ? Well, simply put, the reason we start there is because so many are not. What you will notice here is how serious Paul is. He's not playing games. He begins with an exhortation. And this is a loud, clear exhortation. Beware. It's it's an imperative. Watch out for. Watch out for. Watch out for. He is dead serious. He's not playing games. There are three rapid-fire imperatives that are just screaming for our attention. And he wants this to stand out. He just repeats these imperatives. Watch out, watch out, watch out. And you, one of the reasons I know he wants this to stand out to us is because he actually gives a list. And in this list, this is an alliterated list in the Greek language. In other words, each of these words, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for the mutilation. Actually, each of those words begins with the same letter in the Greek language. He really wants this to stand out. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. His strong language rivals what he says to to the Galatians in chapter 1 verse 8. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned to hell. Such strong language. And what he does is he brings to the attention of the Philippians the, the, these false teachers, the ones who are right now opposing them, the ones who I believe are the, the cause of this internal strife that's being experienced in Philippi. They, they came there and likely started spreading some kind of dissension. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if these rascals were, not, were the ones who were causing the problems between Yodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2. And Paul is hot under the collar. He is steamed about these guys. Why? Because they were coming in and trying to hurt the church that was so special to him, and he would not have it. He was going to go to war. This is the kind of shepherd you want. This is the kind of sheepdog that you want, barking when his master and his master's sheep are attacked. And Paul is hot under the collar, and he's going right for the jugular, and he tells us to beware. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. You see, these false teachers, 
If I can cut right to the chase, we're concerned with one thing. They were concerned with circumcision. They were false Jewish teachers who took the Old Testament practice of circumcision and transformed it into a ceremony, a ritual. It was given by God originally to indicate something, to communicate the need for a relationship to God. It was a symbol of man's sin and needing to be set apart unto God. But they took the symbol and made a religion out of it. They neglected the relationship in favor of a religion. They rejected divine accomplishment in favor of human achievement. And Paul says, watch out for them. Watch out for these legalists because they will bring a joyless existence into your church. But then as he goes from this exhortation, he brings in sort of this softer, more tender encouragement in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Literally, we are the true circumcision. What he does there is he gives identifying marks of what he calls genuine worship. what What it means to be a genuine Christian. There are three identifying markers that will help you know whether or not you are a true believer. Three genuine markers to help you know whether or not you're a true Christian. What are they? Notice what he says. Who worship by the Spirit of God. That means that the true Christian approaches God through the work of the Holy Spirit. The true Christian, the Christian is a Christian because he has been drawn to embrace Christ as the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Listen to me, brothers and sisters, what Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying to these Philippians, he's looking at them and saying, your life demands a supernatural explanation. In what sense? In this sense, no one ever calls Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. You see, what happened in your life is you were minding your own business, you were minding your own business, and based on no merit of your own, you heard the truth of the gospel in such a way that it demanded something of you. you one day, you heard the truth of the gospel because You were made alive by the Spirit of God. We say you were born again and you were brought to faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. And when he says true Christians are those who worship by the Spirit, he's saying true Christians are those who approach God by the Holy Spirit based not on my merit, not on my worth, not on my earning, but understanding Something happened, and I heard the gospel in a way that I'd never heard it before. And I found myself turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Not only does he say that they worship by the Spirit, but he says that they glory in Christ Jesus, which makes sense, right? Because if you worship by the Spirit, you'll glory in Christ Jesus. Your boast as a Christian is not in yourself. It's in Christ It's not based on what you've done or merited or earned, but only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even Charles Wesley said, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in thee I find. 
The, the, the true Christian glories in Jesus Christ. The true Christian doesn't, doesn't puff out his chest and, 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 and lift up his head and look down at everyone else. The, poor, the, the Christian is like that lowly, that lowly Gentile who beats his breast and understands that he is nothing outside of Christ. And then he says, thirdly, the genuine Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's a marker of a genuine Christian. You know why? The true Christian has no trust in the flesh because we understand the utter depravity of the flesh, don't we? We understand that in me nothing good dwells. The true Christian has come to the point of humble confession that there's nothing good in me. There is no ability to please God outside of the work of Jesus Christ. Not my resume, not my physical characteristics, not anything about myself. And that's why and that's how we know true joy. Someone said that joy is the currency of those who have no hope in themselves, but rather know the eternal and unmerited hope that is deeply rooted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it here? You've got to know that you are a genuine believer. And that kind of knowledge is embedded in the reality that there was a time in which you were inexplicably drawn to treasure Christ above every earthly earning and every merit of men. You see, there comes a time in life when Christ just becomes more precious to you. What do you mean? I mean, there comes a time in life when you understand with greater clarity than perhaps ever before that you are a wretched sinner and lost and far from God and you will see that mere religious action isn't going to cut it for you. You'll understand that no amount of goodness is going to sway the scales. And there was a time in your life where you began to see the preciousness of Christ. And now your life is, is this, this life of seeing, increasingly seeing the preciousness of Christ. Not perfectly, but as in a mirror, Paul would say. You want to know joy? You got to make sure you're a real Christian. And he gives us this exhortation, watch out for those false ones and this encouragement, we are the true. And then he gives his example, and I'm not going to get into this, but if you want to see his example, you just look at verses 4 through 11. If you wonder what this looks like, what does it look like when you treasure Christ above every earthly possession? It looks like what Paul says, if anybody else has reason to boast in the flesh, I more so. And then he lists his spiritual pedigree. I was this, and I was this, and I was this, and I was this. But you know what he says? That was all, and, and, and the strong language continues. He says, that was all like dung. It was like manure to me. It was nothing. But Christ was all. Has there been that time in your life where for you Christ became more precious because in a moment of spirit-enabled clarity, you heard the gospel like you've never heard it before, and you were drawn. You said, I'm going to believe that. I might not do this perfectly, but I want to believe it. 
Make sure you're a genuine believer. And then secondly, if you want to, if you want to, to know joy, pursue spiritual maturity. That's what he says in verses 12 through 17. Look what he says, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the pri- for the prize of the upward call in God, of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. See this note of spiritual maturity? And if anyone, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You see, making sure that you're a true believer doesn't mean that all of a sudden now that your life is a let go and let God life. Some of you have fallen into that false doctrine. Just let go and let God. That, in other words, it requires no effort. No one should think that. No one should think that as a result of what we just read in the first 11 verses that Paul is the model of perfection. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 12. Yes, there are rich blessings in Christ. Praise the Lord. Every genuine believer is granted the perfect righteousness of Christ. The very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is imputed to you when you believe on him. And furthermore, he says, the power of Christ is at work in every believer to bring him into conformity to the image of Christ. And to one day to bring him all the way to a glorified body. All that is true. And it produces an immense amount of joy. But you should not take from this that there is no effort required to live the Christian life. In verses 12 through 17, Paul describes what it means to mature. He describes what it means to grow up, which results in joy, this inner contentedness of heart. What are the steps to spiritual growth? There are four of them. One, realize you're not there yet. Realize, recognize you're not there yet. Throughout this passage, Paul draws at his love for athletics. And he uses that to illustrate and call for spiritual growth. He says, not that I've already obtained, not that I've already received or have, have, have become perfect. I'm already perfect. He said, not that I've already reached the goal. I've not yet reached the goal. I suppose one of the greatest threats to your spiritual maturity is complacency. And apathy. You know, or maybe you have the idea that you've already reached it. Or maybe you have the idea, oh, you know what, I can't reach that, so I'm never even going to pursue it. If you want to grow spiritually, you've got to recognize that you're not there yet. Not there where I want to be. I'm moving, but I'm not there yet. Secondly, you've got to diligently give maximum effort Diligently give maximum effort. You see what he says? Verse 14, I press on. You know what that means? It means to follow hard after. It means to pursue with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain something. Paul pressed on. He says, I followed with earnest and earnestness. I gave diligence for this. Why? He says, look at this. I love this. I press on, verse 14, for the, uh, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He says, uh, 
uh, look, look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see that? Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has reserved me for himself. How do you know he's done that? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, he brought me to embrace the gospel. That's how you know if the Holy Spirit has been active. The Holy Spirit has been active in your life if you have been brought to embrace the truth of who Christ is when you heard the message of the gospel. What is, what is spiritual maturity? Spiritual maturity is pressing on towards something. Pressing on toward what? Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What is that? I like to say spiritual maturity is laying hold of that for which Christ laid hold of you. Listen. I don't want you to to misunderstand what I'm going to say, but I want to correct a wrong uh, thinking, some wrong thinking in many Christians. Do not think that God saved you so that you could have a happy life. God did not save you that you could have a happy life. God did not even save you simply so that you could go to heaven. Why? Because it's not all about you. It's all about Him. By God's grace, every believer will be in His eternal presence. But listen, He saved you to bring you into conformity to His Son. He saved you to make you like Jesus. He saved you to make you into the image of Christ. That's always been the goal. That you would be perfectly and completely righteous in His sight without sin. And listen, without any propensity to sin. Do you know that there won't be any struggles or temptations in glory? You will be glorified together with Christ. You will be created in His his image. And you will bring eternal glory to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why He made you. And so what you do in spiritual maturity is you diligently give maximum effort. You go all out to get that for which God got you. What's it mean? It means to go all out after holiness and righteousness. Give it your all to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Was Christ zealous for the glory of the Father? So you seek zeal for the glory of the Father. Was Christ founded on and filled with the Word in the midst of temptation? So you be founded on and filled with the Word. Was Jesus preaching the gospel to sinners? So you be active in preaching the gospel to sinners. Was the Lord Jesus a man of prayer? So you be a man or woman of prayer. Did Christ despise religious show? So you in all holiness despise religious performance. Did Jesus revile when he, re- when, he revi- when he was reviled? Was his mouth full of crude language and coarse jesting? Was he a drunkard? Was he a man who sought after God and God alone? That's what it means to be like Christ. You say, oh, won't I become a legalist? No. Not if you remember that there's nothing good in you. 
Not if you don't have an ounce of trust or confidence in your flesh. And that all your confidence is in Christ. You work towards that for which he has made you his own. Think Christ-like thoughts. Say Christ-like words. Do Christ-like things. And he will complete the work that he began in you. Praise the Lord. I was thinking about the time that I was helping my son, or my son was helping me when he was little, move something heavy. And I asked him, you want, to, you want to help me? And he said, yeah. And he got down there, and there was no way that he could lift that thing. He didn't know that I was behind him lifting it. And he lifts it up, and he carries it over, and he plops it down. And he's like, look what I did, Daddy. And I'm like, yeah, look what you did. That's awesome. And that's what spiritual growth is like. Here we are giving maximum effort, maximum effort. We're seeking after Christ-likeness. We're seeking after holiness and seeking after righteousness. And we look back at God and say, look what we've done. They're like, that's right, son, look what you've done. But you don't know that I've been doing the heavy lifting. Grace doesn't make effort unnecessary. It makes it effective. He guarantees that every effort will be effective. Every prayer that you pray to become more like Christ will be answered. Even though you can't see it now. You see it in seed form and you see little, little bursts of it, little blips of it. But every effort, every spiritual effort is not in vain. You want to know joy? Then pursue spiritual growth. Realize you're not there yet and give maximum effort. And third, single-minded focus. Do you notice the effort words that he uses here? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal. Think about that runner. All eyes ahead. That runner, it's not just that the runner's not paying attention to others. He's not paying attention to what happened in the past. You make a break with your past. No one, Jesus said, who puts his hand to the plow looks back as fit for the kingdom. Your past achievements mean little in today's race. And your past failures mean nothing. The surest way to paralyze spiritual growth is to talk about the way you used to do it. Straining forward, he says. Straining every muscle, every effort. All of his focus was laid up on what? All of my focus is laid up on the goal. And what's the goal? Christ-likeness. But not only the goal, but the prize, he says. The upward call. I, I keep pressing on toward the goal because after the goal, then there is the prize. And what is the prize? Henceforth, Paul says, is laid up for me, 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 4, henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which he will give to me and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. This is the way, he says in verse 15, that spiritually mature people think. They realize they're not there yet. They give it their all and they're focused on one thing. Single-minded focus on Christ-likeness and one day being brought into the very image of Christ Himself. And what do you do to become spiritually mature? Fourthly, you follow godly examples. He says in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes. Look, I love that. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have on us. Last year, I decided that I wanted to run 
or jog or walk briskly in a marathon just because I wanted to see if I could do it. And one of the things I noticed, I'd never done this before, I had no idea what to expect. And at the starting gate, I saw these people, they were holding signs. And one said, you know, 2.30. And it was like 6 in the morning, and I thought, man, he's going to be done by 2.30? I can do that. Turns out that he was running a two, uh, he was going to finish the marathon in two hours and 30 minutes. Figured that out in about the first 100 yards I'm stopping for a donut and fries, and they're gone, you know? And you see three hours and 3.15. And and I looked, and I said, well, I I think I can, I I, want to do four, four hours. That's my goal. I think I can do four. And, and, And as long as you kept your eyes on him and do what he's doing, you'll complete that marathon in four hours. But there's a problem. Because about... Three hours into that, I realized there was still another hour to go, and my body was not going to do that. It just was And man, my, I, I started looking down, started looking down, and I'm plotting, and I'm plotting. And the next thing I know, he's passing me. I'm like, oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm real close to him. But I didn't realize that he had already run like 30 minutes. So I was 30 minutes this way, and then another 30 minutes back. What, what, he's, what, what Paul is saying here is if you want to pursue spiritual maturity, keep your eyes on the pace setters. Keep your eyes on godly men and godly women. Those who walk according to the example you have in us. Find some godly examples and do what they do. What example? Paul says, oh, my love for the gospel my hard work, you, you set them. And then there's the negative side on this. On the negative side, there are those who are enemies of the cross who live only for earthly things, whose God is their belly, who go out and they live immorally and unright. They say these things are wrong, but yet they do those very same things. Don't follow them. You want to know joy? Make sure that you're a true believer. You want to know joy? Eagerly, diligently pursue spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. And then third, look forward to the coming of Christ. Look forward to the coming of Christ. You know, I was telling you that we did that marathon last year, and and, and it was literally the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. And and I remember uh, it it had to come close. You know, my my watch had stopped working, so I didn't know how many miles I had to go or how long. And every every water station that would come up to, I'd grab some water and I'd say, how much further? How much further can I make it? Can I make it? And, and the answer was always the same. They always lied. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, right? A bunch of liars. And, and, but something happened when I, I'll never forget this. Something happened when I rounded that corner and I saw the finish line. And my knees were hurting. My hip had fallen out six miles ago, right? My spleen was up in my throat. All of a sudden, I didn't feel anything. My pace quickened. Why? Because I could see the finish line. And I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, nothing gives you joy like seeing the finish line. Paul says, if you want to know joy, look forward to the coming of Christ. Look what he says. 
verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That's the whole thing He's been talking about, right? By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. See, that's what He's talking about. Look forward to the coming of Christ because our citizenship is in heaven. And see, the Philippians understood this because though they were residents of Philippi, they were citizens of the Roman Empire. Christians are residents here, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's our real home. We're already citizens. We already belong there. Look forward to the coming of Christ because that's your real home. Not only because of our citizenship, but because Christ will come again. Do you see that? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day, brothers and sisters, He'll come again. He'll split those clouds wide open, and as the song has said, we shall behold Him. And when we see Him, we will be like Him. He will transform our lowly bodies He will save us all the way. That's why I say every effort that you pour out, every diligence that you give, every every effort towards Christ-likeness is never in vain because He will bring you all the way to glory. He'll transform your lowly body. I love how He says that, to be like His glorious body. And how will He do it? He will do it by His authority and by His ability. He will fully transform you because He has the ability and the power to do so all that day to see the finish line. And that's what's happening for many of us. Many of us, we're seeing the finish line. The older we get, we're seeing the finish line. And though you can't tell it on the outside, the pace is picking up a bit. The pain is lessening. We see the finish line. And what does that do? What does that do to our contentedness? When you see the world around us falling apart, what's that do when you see a crashing economy and you experience troubles on every side? What's that do when you get the call from the doctor that it's cancer? brings such a deep-seated content, contentedness that is expressed by an enduring gladness that no matter come what may, it is well with my soul. That's joy. And that's what will keep you strong. That's what will stabilize you in this day. That's what will keep you from becoming a spiritual casualty if you know this joy And the only way to get there is to make sure you're a real believer, to pursue spiritual growth, and to look forward to the coming of Christ. I have one question for you. What would your life look like if you had that joy? What would would your family look like if you were filled with that joy? What would our church look like if we knew that joy? 
For some of you today, you need to become a believer in Jesus Christ. You need to to come to embrace the truth of the gospel that, that Jesus died for your sin, that he was buried, and that he rose again, just like the scripture says. You've, you, you've got to come to embrace that truth. You've got to come to, to trust Christ. For some of you, 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 need to, you need to quit playing. You need to be done with lesser things. Quit trifling. You're playing games with Christ. But you're not giving all out to, to, to become more like Christ. For some of you, you just need to be reminded just a little while longer. <laughs> and I'm not lying. I'm not like those race people, right? You just put your foot in front, one foot in front, just a little while longer. Brothers, don't give up. Sisters, don't grow weary. Because one day, you'll see him again. Amen? Let's pray. So for this, Lord, we're thankful and we would long to, to know you, to give all for you, to live our lives holy for you. For those who've never come to faith in Christ, I pray that you would, you would bring them to that point where they confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they humble themselves and Express no trust in their flesh, but only in Christ. That you'll spur us on to, a, to be spiritually diligent, to, to pursue Christ's likeness in every aspect of our life, to be done with lesser things. So that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. And keep our eyes focused on the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That one day, every effort will be validated. We will be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Let us long for, look for, the coming of Christ, and thus no true joy. We pray this in Christ's name. We give our all God's people's sake. Amen. Amen.